From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Jay Jackson about his new book, Decent Discourse, Saving Your Country by Loving Your Wrong Neighbor. If you are passive, if you allow yourself to just sort of drift in our media uh, ecosystem, you will end up at one pole or the other. And so swimming against that current I think is pretty radical now to decide to listen to somebody, um, to show humility and be able to admit that you might be wrong, I think is a pretty radical position in our political discourse today. We're talking about the highly polarized climate, its roots, and what Jackson sees as a road to decency. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. A lot of media is not especially interested in discourse right now. You get a lot of dramatic headlines and hours of, what's the guy mad about today? But I've always thought that there's value in conversations between people trying to understand each other. That's why this show exists. So today, my guest is Jay Jackson, an attorney and author of the new book, Decent Discourse, Saving Your Country by Loving Your Wrong Neighbor. He thinks the way to solve our polarized climate is to start by being decent. If you're a longtime listener, you can probably guess that I'm a little bit more cynical. But we did our best to try to understand each other, and maybe there's value in that, regardless of where we landed. So here's our conversation. So I know it's uh, it's cool for everyone to hate on Don't Look Up for various reasons, and I'm not saying that people <laughs> are totally unjustified in doing so, but I do think it hit on one of the core issues of our time that Functionally, I think it works as a movie that has more to say about communication than climate change. And so the conceit, if anyone listening hasn't seen it, is there's a big asteroid heading toward Earth, but we're all so polarized that nobody can actually solve problems because media obscures and warps our ability to address existential risks. And so Leonardo DiCaprio's character gets to have his big Howard Beale moment. He screams, if we can't all agree at a bare minimum that a giant comet the size of Mount Everest hurtling its way toward planet Earth is not a good thing, then what happened to us? How do we talk to each other? What have we done to ourselves? And so I've been thinking about that a lot in the last uh, the past month with all these balloons and talks of alien invasion. And I'm not even totally sure you could get everyone to agree that an alien invasion is happening uh, in today's climate. Like if I say that now, it's on NPR. So does that make it a lib issue? Now are we going to fight about it? I don't know. Do you, you think about stuff like that? Yeah. Um... It, you know, it's funny you say that. First off, I didn't know that you would have me on here to talk about, you know, how to how to defeat the inevitable asteroid or alien invasion that's coming. I I, I had much uh, uh, much simpler challenges in mind. I think when I we'll get to the simple. We'll start the big. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Will you repeat your question again? I'm sorry. What? No, you know, just it's it's really just the the point of what I think is insightful about that movie is. I don't know that we can even agree on reality as it happens because it gets filtered through media and that's so polarized. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the first side of picking a side is you get to pick your own facts and your own analysis, right? right. So, um, you know, whether the uh, the aliens are the good guy or not may, you know, very much depend on, you know, which uh, which cable news channel you're watching that evening. Right. And uh, that's disturbing. And it seems like Decent Discourse, your book, does come out of a frustration uh, that sort of stems from the results of our media landscape and then now that creates a cultural landscape. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think starting trying to sort of shrink our world so that, you know, we can do something about it individually instead of just sort of being uh, overwhelmed by everything that's on cable news, everything that's in social media um, and, and coming at us sort of in our in our feeds and from our families and sort of shrinking it down to individual conversations and relationships that we can actually do something with. Well, but first, though, you probably had to grapple with it in a bigger, more like the, the way that the we want to be able to stop the, the asteroid from hitting Earth. You know, you want to solve it, the big problems in the big way. Right. So what was that journey like for you before you got to the point of like, no, it's individual choices? Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great question. And it, right, it's the big problems that sort of brought me to, you know, pen and, and paper in uh, 2021 after the election season. Uh, shortly after January 6th, uh, and having been a career military guy up to that point where, um, gosh, I, I sure thought we all had a common mission. Uh, and, you know, I took an oath to defend the Constitution. I viewed uh, everybody in the United States as, you know, a friend and not an enemy to, to hear, to learn suddenly as a civilian that I should be looking at my neighbors as, you know, some of them as enemies rather than friends was shocking. And so um, to sort of view the these big problems through that prism uh, was sort of how I ended up, you know, uh, in a position to start writing in, in March of 2021. 
So was it frustration then and wanting to figure out how to do something that then leads you? I mean, I guess there's there's that on just an interpersonal level. Yeah. And there's that on just like things are kind of disturbing in the country is maybe yeah. watching, you know, January 6th happen and the aftermath of it. Um, but then also to then say, OK, but maybe a book can help. Is that like that's another step, right? Yeah. How'd you get there? It's funny. Uh, on accident, I think, is the main uh, answer to your question. It, it really started as sort of cathartic journaling. I think the it's the attorney in me that made me want to, um, you know, look to facts and look to evidence and sort of build the case for like, what are the big problems? And then, you know, the the military officer in me thought, well, you don't you don't bring problems unless you've got solutions uh, to them as well. Um, and so, you know, starting with, well, hey, what what can I do with the problem of viewing people as enemies? What can I do with the problem of um, how hard it is to figure out what the truth is uh, online or, you know, on TV or, or wherever, just with what's going on around us? Is it a real alien invasion? Uh, alien invasion? Um, is it misinformation? Um, is it being spun a certain way because somebody wants to profit? I mean, we all just it's it's hard enough just to figure out what the truth is. Um, and, and I think any of these these areas. Yeah, well, as far as profit goes, that's one that we can't solve. Right. So that's actually something I did want to talk about, which is that candidates and corporate media make money uh, if everything is very intense all the time because yeah. it gets your eyeballs. So, you know, 24 hours of news streaming, social media. They're incentivized to make sure that things seem really bad and things are really intense. And I think it also makes sense to me that somebody really loud and incendiary like a Matt Walsh is going to catch eyeballs in a way that sometimes quiet, diligent journalism doesn't, which is a separate problem because it's not really uh, about hating your neighbor. It's just sort of about this is entertaining and interesting and loud, and I'm going to look at the loud direction before I'm going to look at the quiet direction. That's right. Yeah. 30-second campaign spots aren't, you know, 30 seconds of somebody uh, explaining their brilliant, you know, tax plan, right? It's um, it's a, a scary voice for the opponent and, you know, and American flags and puppies and things, right? Because I think that there's, a, there's something uh, natural ab- about appealing to emotion and something memorable and and it works right i right. mean i've been like a trial lawyer guy like that's kind of what you do you want to tell good stories and uh, appeal to people's emotions but right unfortunately what we've discovered through um some of the facebook whistleblowers is that that's also extremely profitable right that's what brings people back for clicks and engagement and you know drives advertising and so i think uh it was um president obama put it a couple of years ago it's it's not that this sort of um, political rancor is new. I mean, you know, Thomas Jefferson had, uh, you know, uh, sort of minions saying that John Adams was, you know, hermaphroditic and that he had neither the strength of a man, you know, nor the sensibility of a woman. So this sort of this crazy discourse isn't new. Um, but the way President Obama put it was that uh, social media is turbocharging sort of the rhetoric that we already have around us. Right. Because, I mean, we filter everything through our phones basically now. That's how yeah. we watch everything. And so there is a middleman. It's not like you're out there watching a speech even most of the time That's right. in yeah. person. Yeah. Or you get 10 seconds, you know, of the speech, which match the facts and the narrative that, you know, are inside the echo chamber that you've chosen for yourself to, you know, prove um, that, you know, to give you the things that you like in that media ecosystem. Right. Well, and that's uh, that's one where I'd like to think that being kind solves that problem. But I don't know that you can solve the profit entertainment element of our the way that our reality is constructed. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that we can't solve it. Um, uh as a society, you know, you you and I, you know, Tom and Jay uh, here, but I think that we can solve it for ourselves, right? And we can make a deliberate effort um, to get different kinds of media, to make sure we're only consuming trustworthy media. And so I think there's some things we can do individually, even if, you know, uh, again, you and I aren't going to, uh, you know, take down the, the major sort of, you know, purveyors of for-profit fake news that are out there today. Well, and your, your approach is it's one of almost, uh, it's almost modeled like self-help. Because it's sort of like we're all kind of addicted to this, and maybe yeah. that's not great, but it is. It's almost like you have to rewire your brain to a certain extent to look in a different direction. A, a little bit. The other piece of that is, I mean, you know, I read books. I read great books that explain how the world should be, and then I put them down, and I, you know, largely go back to the way I was living. And so, one of the things I uh, I do try to do in the book is give tangible steps of, you know, here's the thing you can do today. Go have a conversation with this neighbor. Go, you know, go to the library and get a book about this thing so that um, we can actually start making an impact. And, and in doing that, too, I think it also is good for it's good for our sanity and our our mental health to know that you've got some agency and you can you can do something about it. Well, then you're also, though, writing a book that becomes a product that's in this ecosystem of 
wanting to categorize. Yeah. And you are trying to resist uh, partisan categorization. Yeah. So how has that been? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, you know, one thing you learn when you try to write a book sort of down the political middle, you, you try, you do everything you can, right, to write a nonpartisan book. And you realize certainly it's affected by my own biases and uh, the media that I take in. Um, I've been accused by, you know, folks on, on the right of going, you know, too far left. And I've been accused by, you know, folks on the left of, of going too far right. Uh, we all have things, I think, that we agree with and, and disagree with. I, I, all I can say is, you know, I did my best and I sort of, you know, wear that um, as a, well, not a badge of a pride that, you know, there's, there's criticism from uh, both sides. Um, but hopefully to indicate there are examples and counterexamples abound of, you know, of folks who do things right and do things wrong. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I try to use a lot of them in, in the book. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Jay Jackson about his new book, Decent Discourse, Saving Your Country by Loving Your Wrong Neighbor. How do you think the problems of polarization can be addressed? Let us know. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Has, has there been any pressure to categorize yourself as like the reasonable Republican or the moderate Democrat or something along those lines? The, I think the only pressure might be uh, my own self-imposed pressure of, boy, I'd really like to, you know, be a jerk to somebody right now, but I'm the decent discourse guy. And so I need to, you know, treat this guy with humor, which has been a wonderful moderating thing. You know, it doesn't have to be fake. Sometimes it's, you know, good. You have to, um, you know, you have to be, uh, love somebody intentionally before you sort of, you know, have the emotion of loving them. It's sort of one of those things where, okay, I've, I've told everybody, you know, I've written a book called Decent Discourse. I can't act like a jerk anymore. Um, and that's, I think that's probably a good thing, at least for me personally. Yeah, I think uh, that people, part of the addiction beyond um, the entertainment element is it seems to be cathartic for people to be able to be mean online or to live vicariously through somebody else who's maybe like doing a monologue about how these are the problem people. And I, I worry sometimes that there's this ugly idea in there that sometimes people, they like to hate. Yeah. And that that's its own addiction, which is hard to break as well. Yeah. So, I mean, was that like a journey for you to navigate that, to get to this point where now you seem a little bit more at peace with the type of person and type of reaction you have? I think there's no doubt that there's there's something, uh, you know, dark in, in human nature that particularly with anonymity sort of allows us to go, you know, when I'm, you know, JJ, lots of letters after my name, um, you know, I might say things that I wouldn't. Should I come face to face with somebody, you know, in the in the store? It's the same reason, you know, probably when somebody cuts you off in the car, you yell at them in a different way than you would if they, you know, accidentally did it in a um, in the grocery store with their shopping cart for folks who still shop in grocery stores, I guess. Uh, but the other thing at the same time, man, we're lonelier and have fewer friends than ever before. So it's not as though this this vitriol online is making us feel better about ourselves. Um, one in seven men is friendless. One in 10 women are, are friendless. And that's a new, that's a new thing for us. Uh, and so I think, um, I think that, you know, social media and, and having, you know, our phones in our pockets with so much information and, uh, and the ability to communicate um, is a wonderful thing in a lot of ways. Um, but it also presents a real challenge for us as, as a society and as individuals. Yeah, I've been reading um, Theodore Rojak a lot, and he, he talked about, he wasn't really talking about phones, but even just in the, the internet, uh, the boom of the internet in the 90s, that having access to basically infinite information doesn't necessarily make you any better at processing information. Yeah. Because you sort of treat it just as this is a thing I can recall, I can pull up, I can look at if I need to, as opposed to I have to comprehend the implications of this or actually comprehend what I'm even looking at at all. Um, and so I think that that's something where we, we – I don't know. Sometimes it's sort of like we, we are able to fool ourselves into thinking that we're really well-informed just because we have maybe a well-curated Twitter. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there, there are a couple things that I can remind. Number one, there are studies that show that, you know, right, you can uh, – once you reach a certain uh, level of information intake, you actually start to become less informed, which I think is, is fascinating. And again, I'm not a political scientist or a, a sociologist. I, I try to bring these things to, um, you know, regular people like me in the book. But there are also studies that say that there's something about um, – Knowing all the things that are going, being able to fully digest every mass shooting, being able to fully digest every conflict zone in the entire world, every time there's civilian casualties, you know, we can know that there's a certain level of of guilt in our inability to do something about it, and and in real inability, 
not, you know, I should, you could always be donating more, doing more. And so I think getting out of that ecosystem and shrinking, you know, your world down to, hey, what can you do in your community right now is an important part of what I advocate for in the book. Right. Well, and I think also when you were talking about loneliness, I think about the way that I can read, you know, 200 headlines in the day or something on Twitter. Yeah. But uh, processing that on my own as I scroll through my phone is very different than if I'm trying to do it with somebody else, if I'm trying to communicate about it or understand it or ask questions or even argue about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, I also think that, you know, there's at some point um, you have to ask yourself how much you're sort of medicating yourself and numbing out with information instead of relationships, right? Information is not a substitute for relationships. I think sometimes we, we think that's the case. Why do you think people are more lonely now? Wow. That's uh, if only if I could figure this out, we could solve uh, a lot of problems for for your listeners. Uh, I think that there's I think social media plays an important part of it um, and our ability to uh, access so much information online. But the other thing that's happened at the same time is we've seen uh, the number of community institutions um, go down. You know, guys aren't hanging out at the Moose Lodge. Uh, folks aren't going to church like they used to. Um, people aren't living their lives in their in their front yards and in their neighborhoods and interacting. Uh, if I use myself as an example, right, I sort of I work remotely a couple days a week. I've got a great deck that faces backwards instead of forwards so that I would never have to interact with any of my neighbors. Uh, we order our grocery. I know I said something about a grocery uh, or a shopping cart earlier. We, of course, order all of our, you know, groceries so that we never have to leave the house. And with Uber Eats and everything, I mean, you can really in our society um, go without human interaction for a significant period of time. And and the fact of the matter is, human interaction can be hard. Uh, people can rub against you in the wrong way, uh, you know, whether intentionally or, or not intentionally. And so, and there's a hodgepodge of, of reasons there. I think it's pretty complex, but um, I think there's, those are some of the things that are going on that make us feel so uh, not just feel, we are, I think, lonely and, and friendless. It's kind of interesting though, that we are uh, social creatures who are lonely, who feel negatively about being lonely, but at the same time, it is maybe more appealing to still be by myself than to be out with other people. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a selfishness, not in a, a condemning sort of way, uh, but if I wanna feel good, well, then I can stay inside and eat the food I want and watch the things I want and believe the things I want and go online and access information which confirms that all of the things I believe, whether it be that the earth is flat or, uh, you know, black lives matter or, you know, we're going to make America great again, whatever the thing is that I want to believe, I can find, um, I think, counterfeit community online that tells me that. But again, I think we, we look at that information uh, and it's never going to be the same as as real relationship. Well, and so to, to tie it back to sort of your bigger argument, one of the terms that comes to my mind when I was reading your book is Newt Gingrich uh, was sort of vocal about the the way that you can weaponize language. Wedge issues was the term that he liked to use by making sure that we're not trying to talk about the things we agree with. We're talking about the things that push us apart because that's politically advantageous. Yeah. So I think there's sort of two dimensions to a lot of the issues that you talk about. One is when it's sort of this cynical use of language that you know is incendiary, but it's not really coming from a place of hate or anger. It's just sort of being used because, again, being loud gets people to look your way. Yep. The other is people who genuinely don't like certain types of people, and that's what's guiding them. So I think there is a real hate sometimes, and other times there's kind of a manufactured hate, and sometimes those two get confusing, right? Agreed. So um, let's talk about wedge issues first. So why do you think that that's been so infectious in our politics? Because I'm not saying that this was completely invented in the 90s or anything, but it's really become like if I look at Nebraska politics, um, Don Bacon, for example, some days he likes to say I'm a, I'm a moderate, I'm bipartisan. Other days he sends me pictures of cities on fire and says Comrade Carr will destroy America. <laughs> and those two aren't – you can't really make those two add up. Yeah, it's funny – Although I mostly advocate for um, changing our discourse through interpersonal interactions and relationships, conversations, conversations that lead to relationships and relationships that build community, there are a few policy recommendations that I make in the book, and many of them are related um, to the fact that we have this sort of two primary system where we have the the most democratic Democrat and the most Republican Republican um, that come out of that that two party system, and so I think. Uh, 
sensible policy reforms that do things like minimize gerrymandering um, that help, uh, let's say, sand off the edges of a, of a two-party system, whether that's ranked choice voting or whether that's open primaries, anything that allows folks to recognize that we have more in common than we have differences, I think is a good thing um, for our communities. And you, you specifically are optimistic about ranked choice voting yeah. and how that might impact things. Tell me about that. Yeah, so ranked choice voting um, essentially allows you, right, instead of, I think I use sort of the cat and the dog party uh, example, again, trying to be nonpartisan, right, um, in the book. I then, think we know who the cat and the dog party oh, are, though. <laughs> Do we? <laughs> I could make a guess. <laughs> like I said, depends on the breed, maybe. Um, but, but the idea is, you know, if you're, if you're a dog guy, you don't have to worry about splitting your votes anymore. You can say, hey, you know, the Doberman candidate is number one and the Shih Tzu candidate is number two and the cat is number three because I can't deal with the cats instead of instead of splitting votes, um, and so what it does though in the states that that do use it for uh, for state elections, they find that um, the campaign rhetoric is toned down because candidates are competing to be hey if I can't be your first I want to be your second and so I want to show you that I can reach and candidates are endorsing each other. Um, it really does shape the way that campaigns uh, operate in, in those places where it's being used right now. But it's a tough sell when being very partisan is working. Absolutely. Especially for, for people of power anyway. Absolutely. So I'd, I'd rather not be more uncomfortable, Yeah, essentially, is what they're, 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 I think the, the mental sort of uh, way they think about that is. That's right. And I mean, gerrymandering works the same way. I mean, we ask our, you know, our uh, legislators to, to draw maps, and those are the maps that got them in office. So I think there's, there's natural uh, sort of resistance. It's an uphill battle, but I also think there are great um, organizations that are out there um, fighting in a, in a pretty nonpartisan way, in a sincerely nonpartisan way, to just make sure that everybody's voice receives an equal. Um, th- their voices are heard equally, uh, and importantly, that their, their votes are counted equally as well. How much do you think in Congress um, the parties actually hate each other versus like to use the language of hate <laughs> or, or indecent discourse? Let's use know. your terminology. There are probably 535 different answers to that question is what I, is what I would guess. You know, I mean, I was super encouraged um, after I can't remember the name of the the hurricane in the fall in in Florida, but to see President Biden and Governor DeSantis come alongside and sort of, you know, there was, boy, just a a few photo ops and a few um, uh, a few pieces of footage where you saw a couple guys coming together who who didn't appear to hate each other, you know, who were willing to come together and help people that were hurting in in Florida during the, the hurricane. Um, and then you have other representatives calling for a national divorce because, you know, the red states and the blue states are have irreconcilable differences, I guess. Uh, and so I don't know. I think that the answer is as varied as the as the representatives themselves are. Yeah. Well, you know, one example that's just sort of seared into my brain was um, when President Trump encouraged Republicans to elect uh, Roy Moore to the Senate, despite him being credibly accused of sexual abuse of minors, because, as Trump put it, it's better to have more than a Democrat. And to me, if you buy that logic that's got to be rooted in a hate of the other party. That, that's not just politics, right? That's not you thinking about taxes. Yeah. I, I think, you know, and here's, I think, what a decent discourse is about a little bit. I think that we we tend to view our side, you know, whatever whatever our side is, in, the, um, in a charitable light. And we say, oh, well, you know, President Trump probably didn't think that the evidence was sufficient. I don't. I don't know, but I believe that we can. We do a great job of talking ourselves into believing that our side is is the right side, and that the exceptions to that are, are exactly that exceptions. Whereas we nutpick the other side, right? And we find the most extreme, craziest example, and we immediately say, "Aha! I knew it. They were all like that all along." Um, and so, uh, not to be a you know a Roy Moore uh, defender here, but I do think that there's some extent where what we do is we tend to view our side charitably and the other side in the light, you know, that's as, as bad as possible. That, that confirms all of the things we knew all along. And I mean, so by being decent in communities, you think that that would dissipate? I think what would dissipate? The right versus wrong connotation, I think, of my party is right, therefore I'm going to, you know, I will make allowances yeah. if overall I think I'm on the right side and they're on the wrong side. Yeah. Let me answer that with a quick story. I was at an organization um, or at a at a community gathering with a lady who handed me a book about how the 2020 election was stolen. Um, and she said, what do you think about this book? And I said, I think this book is nonsense. I, I said it in a in a nicer way than sure. that. But but I made very clear, like, uh, hey, I, 
I don't think this is true at all. And we had been sitting together for some time and, you know, had small talk about, you know, where we live and her grandkids and my kids. Um, you know, we didn't we didn't build a relationship, but we knew we were, you know, members of the same community and um, and had, uh, you know, at least that in common. And, you know, when I said that, she said, oh, but don't you know that, you know, about, I don't know, they were all conspiracy theories sure. in, my, in my view, right? And she started to explain. And I said, no, I don't believe that's true. Do you know that these have gone to court when this evidence that you're describing, when it's gone to court, where it's been subjected to, to legal scrutiny, they've all fallen apart. Like they're like, oh, for 62 in front of Trump judges and, and Biden judges. And um, I, to answer your question, Tom, I don't think that she changed her mind that day, but that was an important conversation. And if it opened a, you know, a crack, I think, for her to realize that somebody who, you know, can like love her and respect her and also think that she's wrong, uh, I think that's an important part of what we do. So no, I don't think that being, you know, being decent is going to um, solve the the macro problems. I don't think that, you know, l little old me in Papillion, Nebraska is going to do that. Uh, but I think that I think I had an effect on her and I think I had an effect on me. Right. It's a good reminder to my own sort of humanity to to treat somebody like a human being and not be dismissive um, or call her crazy or anything like that. Well, yeah, a term that you use to talk about some of this is to be radically moderate. So I do want to make sure that this term is clear, that I understand it correctly, because I think sometimes with this language, uh, it can have a connotation of being like, just don't be so political, Yeah, which also can be read as maybe be less engaged, maybe accept the status quo more. And I'm not sure that that's exactly what you mean. So can you clarify, what, what does it mean to you to be radically moderate? Yeah, that's not at all what I mean. Um, and so... Uh, you're exactly right. I think, to, you know, to break it down into the two parts, you know, I think what is radical about the moderation that I'm talking about uh, is that to a point you made earlier, everything in our society is telling us to be uh, more partisan, more outraged, uh, more fearful about what, uh, you know, them uh, has in store for us. Uh, and because I think if you, if you are passive, if you allow yourself to just sort of, you know, you know drift in the, in our in our media uh, ecosystem, you will end up at one pole or the other, I think. Uh, and so swimming against that current, I think is pretty radical now to decide to listen to somebody, um, to show humility and be able to admit that you might be wrong, I think is a pretty radical position in our political discourse today. Um, the moderation that I'm talking about is not moderation of your policy preferences. I think that there's, you know, injustice and abuse and um, and we should be, you know, excited. You don't have to be a centrist to be radically moderate. Uh, but what I'm talking about is moderating our, our discourse um, and, you know, listening and humility. And uh, and so, yeah, radically moderate, I think, is the way that we can, um, as individuals, sort of pull back from from the polls um, to, you know, some sort of, sort of sanity in our political discourse. I'm talking with Jay Jackson about his new book, Decent Discourse, Saving Your Country by Loving Your Wrong Neighbor. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. You can find the backlog of all of our episodes wherever you get podcasts. And while you're there, we'd love it if you gave us a review. Today I'm talking with Jay Jackson about the polarized political climate that we live in. 
He wrote a book about this called Decent Discourse, Saving Your Country by Loving Your Wrong Neighbor, which is available now wherever you get books. Here's the rest of our conversation. So as far as discourse that you have, I am curious because you talk about um, maybe making a crack in somebody's really uh, strongly held beliefs or if you think that there's some problem with it or through disagreement that there's something good that can come from it. Has that happened with you recently where someone talked to you about something and made you think about it in a different way? Yeah. Yeah. This happens all the time. Um, you know, I can tell you, I guess we can get let the, you know, the cat out of the bag a, a little bit. And I can say I, I probably would have for my entire life, I would identify as somebody who's fiscally conservative, right? I think that we spend a lot of money and we need to be careful that debt is bad, that debt is a national security problem. Um, and so we need to be really careful about entitlements and what we do with them. Uh, and then I have a dear friend who's a school teacher and uh, has surgery and she has to go back to work because her her paid sick days are all up and she's out of them. And I thought, again, having, you know, been in the military uh, where that's that's not an issue, frankly, right, where we've got great medical care. Um, I couldn't believe that, that here was somebody who who had to do that. Um, or when I hear my own mom, you know, who's, who suffered a stroke a few years back is rationing out her medication because she can't uh, because she can't afford it. Right. These are things I think if we're paying attention to the human beings around us and we have an open mind, we realize, well, you know, fiscal conservatism, right, I think is a very sensible policy. And, and to a large extent, I still think it is. But if we can't think of these hard issues, whatever, whatever they are, all the things that are happening in the unicameral right now, um, the things that are happening at the national level or uh, even within our communities, if we can't have an open mind to see how those affect people in positive ways or negative ways, and we've sort of lost course. And so is that something then, did that change your, um, I, don't, I don't know if you conceive of yourself as someone who really necessarily identifies with one party or the other, but th- was that something where there was a realignment of priorities and then how that manifests in the limited political options we have? Yeah, I think that, you know, fiscal conservatism, I think, is something that, uh, I think is best viewed on a spectrum, right? I mean, there is these sort of, you know, no government, uh, pay for nothing, best of luck to you all, um, you know, to, or right, what would you know, be described by most on the right as, you know, socialism or, um, or worse, depending on the, the characterization. Uh, I'll tell you, I try to find, let me back up and say, here's an important part of, I think, decent discourse is not finding your identity in the little letter that's after your name. So, so I, your question doesn't really resonate because that's not that's not my identity. If there's a great you know policy on one side, then I'm for it. You know, like let, let's do it and let's figure it out. Um, and if there's you know injustice or inequality on the other side, then let's figure that out. I, I don't really identify with a um, any particular party in a dogmatic way that would prevent me from having an open mind about you know changing um, considering different policies. You do write about some of the different subcultures that you have had issues with or that you do uh, respond to. And so I thought it was interesting when you write that uh, a lot of the book and the philosophy behind it does come out of your faith as a Christian. Um, yeah. But well, at the same time, you're skeptical about what you call the culture of Christopatriotism. Yeah. And so I wonder if you could explain that culture of what it is that you respond to as a Christian, but then how you feel that maybe it's being, uh, you know, uh, appropriated in troubling ways. Yeah. At the, at the same time, I'm trying to write this book down the partisan middle. I also want it to be a book for every American, no matter what you know your re- religion or background is. Um, but I also thought it was important to say, "Hey, I'm a I'm a believer, and I believe in you know Jesus Christ, right?" Um, because I think there are so many people who do that too. L- let me back up and say, when I say that that's the case, I think one of the ways that that you can tell when somebody is a Christian, according to the Bible, is by the fruit of the Spirit, right? So in the book of Galatians, it says, um, right, do you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? And I look around at some of the people who who claim to be Christians, and, and that doesn't seem to be part of their ethos. Yeah, golden toilet wasn't on that list? Um, yeah, no, a lot of these these things uh, are, are not there. And so um, what I wanted to do is, is raise my hand, really for a lot of the non-Christians uh, who are reading the book, and say, hey, you can you can trust this value system. 
um, as something that is that is good for you and, and good for society. Um, and again, I, you know, just sort of to the the principle of loving your neighbor, which is a Christian principle, but I also think has universal application um, across, you know, I shouldn't say every religion as though I'm a... That's the basis of any community. Right, right. And so, um, yeah, that that's why I thought it was important to say that. Well, and so when you talk about the culture of Christopatriotism, yeah. what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think as church attendance and religion has declined in our society, I don't think that religious fervor has stopped. I think we have transferred our religious fervor to politics and issues um, and either support of or uh, fighting against particular people. Uh, and I think that's wrong. I think that's not, you know, that's not the message again of my Christian faith, um, of being somebody who is uh, a broken person um, and is grateful for that, you know, uh, uh, salvation by by Christ. Uh, when you walk around seeing yourself as as broken and in need of help, it's easy to look at others as um, as broken and in need of help, just like you are. And so, um, when I see hurting people, I mean that's an important part of um, of you know where the book comes from. Why do you think there was that realignment from? Um, maybe a church or some kind of religious belief as the moral center to these political parties? Yeah. I don't know that it's a complete realignment. I think that there are probably, you know, those who have realigned, those who um, uh, have attended, you know, attended church because it was the right thing to do for, you know, for years and years, um, but perhaps were never, were never brought in um, or bought in. I mean, the fact that um, you know, evangelical support of, you know, Donald Trump in spite of um, so many things, right, from Stormy Daniels to the Access Hollywood tape and then uh, sort of throughout his tenure as evidence that um, of of a weak faith in um, to the core tenets of Christianity. But I don't know. I don't know that that's completely true that that there's been a complete realignment everywhere. Well, but also, I mean, so... Christianity often gets coded as sort of right wing, whereas something outside of Christianity, whether it's atheism or some sort of variation of a, a less overtly religious culture, is usually coded as more Democrat. Yeah. And I don't know that that really corresponds to the demographics of the parties all that well, but that, that is kind of the cultural uh, representation we have. Yeah, I agree. I think that whenever we allow our political and cultural identity to sort of subsume our, our religion, and our, by religion I mean the thing that you hold, you know, what is the thing that um, helps you make sense of the way the world works? I think that that's usually not a good thing for, for society. Well, yeah, I, well, I think some people, some cultural critics have – diagnose some of what you're talking about as um, people are looking for some kind of moral core, some kind of moral center, something yeah. to look to for meaning. And politics will give you that in the sense that it will say this is the most important thing that will define society in the future and so on and so forth. So I think it's it's sort of easy to look that direction and maybe fill that void. Yeah. There. Yeah. If only it didn't change every two years. Uh, and if only our political saviors uh, were not just as, you know, broken and, and messed up as, as we are um, and sort of riddled with, you know, scandals and, and half-truths and, and compromise, then that, that might be a great idea. Um, but, you know, but unfortunately, I think... Uh, yeah, I think that's a lousy substitute for um, for traditional um, religion and, and certainly in my case, Christianity. So in part of what you're talking about is being kind to your neighbor, even if they're wrong. There's also this idea that maybe you don't have to convert your your neighbor to your side, right? Yeah, Also, if, if we're moving it away from sort of some of the religious connotations. Right, right. <laughs> so is that, is that a struggle for you? Or are you comfortable with people disagreeing with you on maybe really fundamental elements of society? Yeah, I think so. In the book, I talk a little bit about of my, uh, my growing up. And I, I came from um, uh, a split household where I had my, my mother sort of worked hard and was a, a safe, secure uh, place. I was at her house three days a week, and my dad was kind of a mess. Lots of wives, lots of girlfriends, uh, on the run from the law, uh, financial problems. And so, but I knew that they were my parents. Um, and I knew that, you know, um, you know, in, in their flaws and in their differences, that, you know, that they loved me and that they were safe and that I loved them, you know, and honored them as, as parents. 
Uh, and at the same time, I went to um, a high school in South Florida where I was in a magnet program that was uh, a bunch of white kids, a bunch of kids from the suburbs that looked like me. Um, and yet I was also uh, on the football team and, and found deep, deep community with dudes who were mostly uh, black and Hispanic um, and hung out with them on the weekends and so could live in both of those communities and sort of, I think, have always been comfortable living in a place where Hey, you've got you've got different values. You've got different principles. You look different than me. You have different ideas for um, for how you should live. Um, I think it wasn't really until writing the book that I realized um, that that I, there's some ease. I think in, in that for me, and um, and some empathy too in people that I, I don't think. Uh, one of the things that drives me absolute bananas is, hey, you Republicans, you. Uh, you like school shootings because you like dead kids. Or, hey, you, you progressives, you, you love abortion because you think murdering babies is fantastic. That kind of language where you sort of, you put a, a uh, just an evil motivation, um, you know, on people's uh, ideas drives me bananas. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the main reasons why. Well, I think it's easier to cultivate your empathy for people who are maybe in a different situation than you are at a community level, at a peer level, I think where it gets complicated for people is when you feel powerless because maybe people who are in the government who have power yeah. don't seem that interested in uh, expanding their empathy yeah. or understanding people who disagree or having conversations of really any kind, right? That, absolutely. And I think having a diverse sort of media diet, um, if all you consume is one side of the news, which tells you that your side is the good side and the other side is the bad side and they want to hurt you um, and we're at war with them, then it is I mean, it's impossible. I don't know how, how you would have any empathy um, if you only consume information from one side. And remember, not just analysis from one side, but only the facts from one side. You don't hear any of the good things about the other side because they don't meet a particular narrative. They don't get you excited and angry um, and, and coming back for more news the next night. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Jay Jackson about his new book, Decent Discourse, Saving Your Country by Loving Your Wrong Neighbor. How do you think the problems of polarization should be addressed? Let us know. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Does it ever disturb you how much of a journey it is for people to become empathetic? No. No, I don't think I'm disturbed by that, Tom, because I think I don't think the journey is that hard. I think that we, when we know people, when we have relationship with people, um, we're deeply empathetic for what they're going, for what they're going through. When we're, uh, you know, watching our our favorite cable news program or down, you know, protesting uh, or you know, doing something, I think there's a there's a level where we lack humanity uh, or appreciating the humanity of that other person. But when you work with somebody every day and you know them and you come to, um, you know, to love them deeply, when you learn, you know, that they feel a certain way about policy position X, Y, or Z, you have a whole framework um, to put that into, which I think is um, extremely helpful and allows you to understand, well, hey, I know all of these, you know, these things about you. Um, and this is just one one facet of it. Um, and so... Yeah, I hope that for most of us, at least at least within relationship, that that you know that that's not a long journey or a hard journey. Well, I think it's a journey that requires the the right motivation to put yourself in momentum. Right? That's right. Yeah. And, and radically radical. Yeah, motivate exactly. Right. Well, but that doesn't. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's a, a thing that everybody necessarily comes across. Or some people get very that's comfortable true. and they don't really want to have to get out of that comfort zone and understand something new. That's right. And I don't want to be Pollyannish as though there aren't people who don't talk to their relatives at Thanksgiving anymore because of these very issues, right? Moms and brothers and adult children. And, and so um, I know that that's happening. Um, I would just say that I know it's incredibly hard work to do that. And, and by the way, I'm not talking about, you know, people who are sort of, you know, abusive, oppressive. I think that's another category. Um, but, but people with whom we disagree, it's still really hard work to do that. Uh, but I think hard is not the same as impossible. Well, and to, to connect some of this again, abusive and oppressive sometimes are what uh, certain political parties advocate and have certainly in the past, right? Yeah. And so I think sometimes, you know, the the person who's at Thanksgiving 
becomes a way of representing the oppressive the oppression that comes from a power structure. And it is it is hard sometimes to say, yeah, just get over the fact that this person, you know, devalues your humanity in some way. That's right. That's right. I think um, I think back to viewing people in a charitable way in the sense that, you know, if I learn, let's say I'm, you know, I'm a progressive and somebody says something that is perhaps insensitive on the right, right, I might defend them as, or excuse me, not defend them, but right, accuse them instantly of confirming what I knew all along that they are, you know, a bigot or a racist or whatever. Um, this this week, right, we had uh, Don Lemon talking about Nikki Haley on on Thursday. Don Lemon was on his morning show and said that Nikki Haley probably wouldn't be a good presidential candidate because she was past her prime. Um, and went on to explain that women are in their prime in their 20s and 30s, right? And co-host Poppy Harlow said, in their prime for what? Um, and so I would imagine, I don't, I don't know this to be true, right? But there might be those in the left of like, well, right, Don Lemon is a, a trusted progressive figure on my favorite news channel. I'm sure he didn't mean that. He's since gotten training. Um, he's, uh, he's given an apology. Uh, and so, right, we could look at that in a way that w- we might not look at it the same way if it happened on the other side. Sure. Well, I think in, in that situation like that, the the media landscape of always having to have so much to say about every single topic <laughs> is a weird <laughs> expectation. And you are going to say dumb things. Yeah. If that's the expectation. That's true. But we also feel that, right, that's not just Don Lemon. That's each of us on our social media feeds. Right? Sure, we feel yeah. the need to comment on every single thing. And sometimes, right, just not commenting um, is is perfectly fine. I think that's a good <laughs> dis- a good moment of discipline when you realize I don't really know what I'm even saying about this. Maybe I just don't tweet today. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that might be a bridge too far. <laughs> so, um, your book. Have you had uh, the chance to sort of hear people's reactions? Has it changed anybody's uh, mind about maybe how they are going to approach the political landscape? Yeah, I think people. Um, I think the main the main thing that I hear is people are encouraged by it. Right, they get the sense that they're not alone. It's a very lonely place to feel like everybody is at war and you're in the middle wondering why. Um, And so people uh, have told me encouragement has been the main thing. The other thing people love are the sort of the practical action steps, you know, that I talked about briefly earlier. So you get to the end of the chapter um, about, you know, getting out of your, uh, your echo chamber and it says, hey, you know, call that guy that you disagree with and ask to have coffee with him about the thing that you disagree about. Um, or, you know, go read a book about whatever. And so I think that people uh, really do appreciate sort of the tangible items that, that you can do to, um, to start making steps to, you know, if not making the, the entire nation healthy all at once, at least sort of, uh, you know, taking steps in that direction in your personal life. Is this the start of a uh, career of books talking about society, how people should live, or yeah. something along those lines? No, uh, no. I told you this was accident. This was an accidental uh, book, you know, that sort of came out of my own frustrations. One thing that people um, have asked me on, on numerous occasions, though, is, "Will you please write this book for my uh, for my adolescent, for my middle schooler, for my teenager?" Because they're getting bombarded with the same kinds of messages, um, but with you know, without the discernment of adulthood and the sort of you know, fully formed frontal lobes to process it. Um, even as you know, we adults don't do a particularly good job of processing it. But not only that, but they are you know, to the extent we talk about uh, our loneliness and friendlessness crisis. Boy, you know, teenagers and especially teenage girls are in a world of hurt right now. So is a book the right medium to reach that demographic? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. That's you need to be a great, YouTube. You need, you need yeah, TikToks. I need to you do need some 4, TikToks. Yeah. TikToks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that anybody wants to see my TikToks. <laughs> I might have, you know, seven, seven followers. I hope you would be one of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't have a TikTok, but sure. <laughs> oh, me either. <laughs> but uh, no, I think that's another thing that uh, as far as your message we're talking so much about the way that people consume media yeah. and books at one point held this, you know, this, this, they were the way that you would get a message like this out. And I'd like to think that it, like, the right books still can do that. Sometimes though, I wonder, you know, maybe, maybe things do need to be podcasts. Maybe they do need to be you know, like, even just an audiobook can go further with a lot of people. That's right. I wonder how much you're trying to navigate what's the right uh, medium for this message. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And so, you know, I wrote a book cause you know, that was the way it started. 
um, but uh, folks on on podcasts and, and places like this on Omaha Public Radio, uh, folks are interested and are hopefully receiving this message. Um, and I've been doing events, you know, all around town for the better part of the the last nine months or so. And it's a delight not just to have somebody, you know, read a book and, and send you an email or, or leave a review, but to be able to engage in a real discussion about exactly how somebody has been hurting um, and how you know they are trying in their in their own life to make. Uh, you know, their family better, their community better, um, and uh, in our country. So do you have any uh, events you want to plug while I have you here? This is the last, I just ended on like a series of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like four in a row, yes. Last Saturday, the Free Speech Society, um, another podcast. There really aren't, there really aren't, I don't have anything coming That's... up right now. This is the pinnacle. This is it. <laughs> I made it to Omaha Public Radio. Why would I need anything else? Yeah, well, for, <laughs> I'm sure other things will come up. It seems like the kind of conversation that you're going to want to continue to have as politics continue to happen, which Absolutely. will be forever. Absolutely. So, uh, and the book is in local libraries and at Bookworm Omaha and online. And so as folks read it, um, you know, they're inviting me to their uh, their various organizations, whether it's a, a civic club or a church event. And, and I'm always delighted to engage with people in those kinds of those kinds of fora. So if somebody listening maybe says, I'm curious, I'd like to hear more, I'd like to talk to you or whatever, how, how can they learn about whatever events you have or whatever it is you're working on or to get in touch? Yeah. So if you go to decentdiscourse.com, um, there's information about the book there. But I also uh, continue to write, having now, one, now discovered uh, the catharsis of, uh, of writing, um, I continue to keep a blog where we talk about um, various, you know, issues, politics that are going on, national security issues. And right now we're working through the Federalist Papers. Uh, and so Federalist 4 is this week um, where really we just go through. We take a Federalist paper every couple of weeks and we apply it to what's going on today. Um, and that's been a big hit with folks. It's been fun to write. Well, I appreciate getting to read your book to talk through all these ideas. And uh, hopefully I didn't throw too many weird curveballs. I do a bad I, – I write – you can see I write these notes and then I barely look at them. And so I don't even know where it's going sometimes. Oh, but I hope great. it was good for this you. I enjoyed it a lot. That's what it is. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Riverside Chance is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, And our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. Tom Noblock.